organic free-range HTML, wild freshwater CSS, and 21-day matured JavaScript. This is not just a podcast. This is Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're taking a look at the UK government's design system. How are design systems used within government? And is it any different to how we might work in the commercial sector? We talked to design systems advocate, Amy Hoop. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In the first of her Understanding CSS Grid series, breaking down the CSS Grid layout specification, Rachel Andrew takes a detailed look at what happens when you create a grid container and covers the various properties that can be applied to the container to shape your grid. Smashing's own Vitaly Friedman updates his ever-popular front-end performance checklist for 2020 with everything you need to know to create fast experiences on the web today. If you're interested in improving the performance of your website, Download this handy checklist and start working through the optimizations in bite-sized chunks. In why you should choose HTML5 article over section, Bruce Lawson looks at the impact the section element has on headline levels visually compared with how that information is communicated to assistive technologies. Find out why article might be the element you need instead. Frederick O'Brien asks questions of a common web design trend in the split personality of brutalist web development. The rapid growth of brutalism can't be ignored, but what's its guiding philosophy and what can be learned from it? Frederick finds out. And in how to create and deploy an Angular material application, smashing author Shubham gives us all a practical walkthrough of creating an Angular 8 web application and a QR code generator app completely based on Angular and hosted on Netlify perfect for anyone interested in taking a few more steps with Angular 8 and material design. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's a content specialist and design systems advocate who spent the last three years working as senior content designer at the Government Digital Service. In that time, she's led content strategy for the gov.uk design system, including a straightforward and inclusive approach to documentation. She's previously worked for consumer advocacy company Witch, where she wrote about everything from composting to conveyancing, and her new role for 2020 sees her take up as project manager for Babylon Health's design system, DNA. She's a skilled cook and Instagrammer, but did you know she once sang backing vocals for Billy Ray Cyrus? My smashing friends, please welcome Amy Hoop. Hello, Amy. How are you? I am smashing. Thank you. So I wanted to talk to you today about the role of design systems within government organisations generally, but specifically the gov.uk design system, which I know you've done a lot of work with. I guess, first of all, what does the gov.uk design system encompass and what was your involvement with it while you were at GDS? So um, it encompasses all kinds of things. So I think the sort of the most obvious representation of it is the uh, the kind of website side, which is um, gov.uk forward slash design hyphen system. 
and um, and there you'll find all of the kind of documentation so all of the design guidelines and um, the components and patterns and you'll see some of the code uh, lots of examples and lots of kind of advice on how to use it um, but thinking kind of more broadly than that it also encompasses things like the prototype kit which is a prototyping tool that is used in government um, to make kind of HTML and CSS prototypes, so quite high fidelity prototypes. Um, and it also has its own kind of front end framework, which is called GovUK front end. So um, that's all the code that they use to build the services. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, I like to think of design systems more holistically. So as well as all of that stuff, there's also kind of all the processes that sit around it. So things like how people contribute to it and how people, um, I guess, like how people kind of come to know that it exists, things like adoption and um, awareness and all that, all that sort of stuff. So all of the things that enable people to design and build services in government is, is how I would define it. So what was your involvement while you were at GDS with that? What, where did you slot into that system? It all kind of happened kind of by chance, I guess. Um, so I joined as a content designer in January 2017 and my intention when I came to GDS was actually to join uh, the Gov UK content teams so I thought I was going in to start writing guidance for citizens and that was kind of that was my dream that was what I wanted to do and then I arrived on day one and got plonked into this little kind of project team um, called the service manual patterns and tools team and at that point the design system didn't exist but we had our kind of design patterns and some bits and pieces kind of knocking about in different places um, and there was an ambition to try and pull those things together. So I was put into that team as a content designer. I didn't know what a design pattern was, didn't know anything about code, <laughs> didn't know anything really about web design at all. Um, all I really knew was was content. So um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a pretty steep learning curve. And I spent the next kind of six months to a year, I think, um, helping the team to kind of prototype it and figure out um, how it would be kind of organized and laid out and how we would write our guidance and um, and all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, in the midst of, of all of that, as well as kind of working on the content, I also started to look into the kind of contribution side, so how people would contribute to it um, and how people would kind of come to discover it and, um, and, yeah, and get in touch with us and what we would do when they did get in touch with us to try and um, make it better. So what does designing content in that sort of context involve? What were the sort of daily tasks you were tackling? So all kinds of things, really. I mean, there was there were weeks at a time, I think, where I didn't write a single word. And it was more just kind of going out to research and, um, and meeting our users and trying to sort of understand what it was that they wanted from a design system. Um, so yeah, without getting kind of too far into it, there had been attempts to make something like the GovUK design system before, um, which is how we'd ended up with this kind of slightly disparate set of resources. And um, for one reason or another, these things had ended up kind of quite spread out and, and it was never really one of them that was seen as a kind of central place to go for this stuff. So a lot of it was just trying to kind of understand what had happened before and why those things hadn't necessarily taken off in the way that we had hoped that they would. Um, trying to understand which bits of our existing landscape were working for people and which bits weren't. So a lot of it was going out with our researcher, Rob, and sitting in user research interviews and kind of taking notes and talking to people and just understanding what it was that they needed. 
Um, and then, yeah, and then there were days where I, where I did actually get to sit at a keyboard and write some guidance about some stuff, um, which was, which was nice too. But yeah, it was very different for me. Like my, as you kind of mentioned in the intro, my background was, um, working at which so it was much more a traditional kind of editorial role and I was work, used to working on kind of long form content and um and just writing really long articles and pieces so yeah it was quite a big change it was it was a big yeah a big leap from that so your users in this context are people who are working in different government organizations is that right different departments within the government yeah yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like people working in, I think there's 25 different ministerial departments in government, and then there's lots of agencies and local government departments as well. So we were kind of trying to spread out and talk to a, a really kind of wide range of people from across the civil service. So yeah, lots of lots of traveling in those early days. Do you think that designing uh, or working on a design system for a a government essentially is any different from a design system for a, a small company or a big sort of enterprisey company? I think so. I mean, I think um, from what I can kind of gather from um, conversations I've had and conferences I've been to and stuff, um, every design system is slightly different and the context is all slightly different. Um, and government is no different in that respect. But yeah, I suppose some of the unique challenges to working on something um, for government is is first of all the scale of it so the audience is probably the biggest um that you could have because government is so big and all the different kind of departments and um the geographical kind of spread of of those um those organizations so the scale of it is definitely something that's slightly different and i think um also the fact that it's not commercially competitive so we, we weren't kind of trying to um keep anything under wraps everything was done in the open as far as possible and um yeah it's all kind of run as a big open source project which was a slightly unusual um concept for me it took me a little while to kind of get used to that and um certainly when we first released it we would see um, bits of our kind of guidance and code popping up in other people's design systems and it took a little while for me to feel all right about that I think at first I was like what what's going on why are all these people taking our stuff um, but actually now I really I really like that I see that as a big compliment and um, and I think it's really good to reuse what you can so um, but yeah that's a strange kind of world to enter when you've been used to working in a more commercial setting I guess. I suppose the fact that it's a essentially publicly funded system means that it's uniquely suited to the public taking it and using it but also worldwide. Yeah. Did you see a lot of use outside of the UK? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's been some really exciting, um, some really exciting kind of projects across the world that have picked it up. So I know that the New Zealand government have used quite a lot of it. I'm not sure what stage they're at at the moment, but certainly I saw their early kind of beta design system and they'd reused a lot of our guidance and our code um, and our layouts and things. I think the Dutch government is also using the WK design system primarily as its um, first kind of proof of concept. And uh, the Australian government started with all of our contribution guidelines and um, and have sort of adapted them based on their research. So we've been able to take some of that stuff back in. Um, yeah, so it's, it's gone. It's gone pretty global. It's, it's, it's exciting. 
Would you factor in the fact that people would be using it when making decisions about the, the sort of next phase of things? Would, would it factor into your decisions that it's actually your audience suddenly isn't just the UK government? It actually could potentially be a, a worldwide audience. It's definitely a consideration. And I think at times that definitely made us as a team quite nervous about certain things that we were doing because the kind of our audience and the scope of it suddenly got much bigger when we were thinking about all the different people that were using it. Um, but personally, I think you can't get too caught up in that. You know, primarily we are there to serve the uh, the UK government. So it's not it's not kind of practical to consider all of the potential audiences for it. And I kind of think it's up to teams to adapt it how they need to for their own their own users. Um, but yeah, definitely. It does, it does make you think quite carefully about just throwing things out there before they're kind of really tested and stuff. So were there any other sort of surprises in in working on this design system that other than the fact that it was then taken and, and used more broadly than you'd initially expected? Did anything else um, spring out and surprise you about it? One thing that, that definitely kind of stood out to me was the the kind of range of people in our audience. So not just kind of the size of the audience, but um, like the variation in people's kind of level of knowledge, their skills, their confidence, um, the different kind of jobs that they did and um, and the kind of contexts in which they were working. I think there's definitely a lot of variation in there. And I think um, my perception kind of going in was that, you know, I had this kind of vision of this like designer front end developer in my head, somebody with lots of technical knowledge and um and and actually that's just one type of user and there are lots of other people like content designers and things weren't necessarily an expected audience for it but have turned out to be um kind of key users so I think yeah that's that was definitely a surprise to me and then thinking about how we could kind of cater to all those people with such a broad set of needs um with the design system was definitely quite a big challenge um yeah I think that was probably my biggest surprise and then and I guess alongside that just how um how much people had seemed to kind of adopt it as their own so I think after we launched pretty quickly I was um really pleasantly surprised at how many people um I would see kind of going out and advocating for it within their own departments and teams and people trying to contribute to it and people getting in touch with us to to ask how they could kind of adapt it for their own users it was it felt really community owned from day one and that was a really um not necessarily something i expected but something that was really really good to see i guess much of the role of a design system is as a way of sort of documenting the design decisions that have been made so that those those decisions can be then implemented and understood and used by people so i guess a design system is is as much as anything a documentation artifact isn't it it's is is taking those decisions that have been made and explaining them uh, in a way that people can reuse them. How did you approach as a team the design system as a sort of documentation artifact? How did you uh, document what you were doing? So I think it was about getting as much as we could, getting a really clear picture of what people um, needed from that documentation. So this comes back to that point that I made about it being quite a broad-reaching audience um, because there's a whole range of different needs that, you know, people talk about kind of documenting a component or a pattern, like it's a kind of single task, but actually um, there are loads of different ways that you can do that. And there are loads of different needs that you need to take into consideration. So we had, we had people who 
for example, would just, they would say, oh, you know, I want to see the research behind this. And for some people, that means a number. They want to know that it's being used in 20 different services so that they can tell their product manager um, that they it's worth kind of investing the time and the money in implementing it within their service. And that's, for them, it's just about getting that kind of evidence-based backing for the decision that they're trying to kind of push through. Um, but then there's other people who really care about, you know, understanding the research and whether it's kind of appropriate for their context and what additional research they might need to fill in to kind of fill any gaps that have been missed or perhaps that they are dealing with in their unique um, situation. So I think the kind of the approach was to try and understand all of those different needs and to try and get a sense of priority amongst those and understand like how we could cater to um, all of the kind of various different requirements that people had from the documentation because it isn't it's not just one kind of one thing that fits everybody so figuring out how to kind of address all of those needs um, and to signpost the content really well in a way that meant that people could kind of skip over the bits that weren't relevant for them as well. Because when you are trying to serve such a broad audience, obviously you end up providing quite a lot of information. So making sure it's really well signposted and organised, I think was quite key to what we were doing. So am I right in understanding that different departments within the government aren't, aren't actually compelled to adopt the design system? You actually have to effectively sell it into them and persuade them to use it? Yeah, so it's 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 slightly complicated. Um, I so in government there's something called the uh, service, the government service standard, and it's a standard which um, all government services with over a certain number of users are required to meet in order to get funding and then to go into um, alpha and then beta and then live. And one of the points on the service standard, uh, I left three weeks ago and it's already dropped out of my head which number it is, but one of the points of the service standard, um, it talks about kind of reusing um, patterns and components and trying to reuse what's there already. So sort of under that point they are compelled to use it but it's um it's loose and it depends on kind of who the assessor is it's not it's not sort of heavily mandated um and we would always sort of advocate for doing what's best in the specific context um rather than just you know reusing patterns out of the box for the sake of it to tick you know to tick a point on a service assessment so it's difficult to to kind of force it so the approach was always much more collaborative and it was always about kind of building support and building advocacy um for the design system not kind of shoving it down people's throats and i guess to that end um one of the ways that you've uh, managed to do that is by encouraging contribution is that right yeah definitely so i'm um a big kind of fan of of contribution to design systems I think it's something that's really interesting and yeah certainly in the team we did a lot of work to make it possible to contribute to the WK design system Um, and one of the real kind of benefits that we saw from that was the 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 kind of net advocates for the design system increasing so when you when you get somebody to contribute to it and they they then feel kind of more invested in it and what we would see is those people would then go out to their teams and they would become our kind of best sales people almost because they'd feel like they had a little piece of it and they had sort of something to show people um and they would then encourage more people to contribute and so that effect ends up being quite exponential um yeah so we we put a lot of effort into into kind of making that possible what sort of things did you do to encourage contribution 
We started really early. So way before we had a kind of public design system, we started to engage with people who we thought kind of would be interested contributors. Um, I should mention here, uh, we had a, a brilliant service designer on the team. She joined us in um, do you know, I'm not going to get the dates correct in any way at the moment, but I think uh, she worked with us in the whole of sort of 2018. Um, and she, she, her name's Ignacia, uh, and she just did a fantastic job of kind of going around and engaging people. So one of the things that she did was to go and identify um, all of the different patterns in government and all the different kind of variations of those patterns. Um, so going out and kind of saying, okay, there's there's 10 different ways to ask for an address in government. Um, let's look at them all together and decide which we think is the most appropriate approach. Um, how can we consolidate these into one? She ran a big workshop to try and get people kind of looking at those and um, and doing that kind of consolidation as a team. And I think definitely her approach to kind of building collaboration in um, way before we actually released anything to the public really helped with that because it meant that people already had that kind of awareness of it and many people had already contributed to it in some fashion or another before we actually took it public so we were you know it kind of put us a few steps ahead um, so I think that was really important and um, and just persistence like a lot of persistence from the whole team in in kind of helping people to contribute it's not um I think there's there's an idea that if you get people to contribute to a design system that's that's a pretty sweet gig because you can just get people to do all the work for you and you kind of just sit there and you make your little code fixes and and everybody's actually giving you all the good stuff but actually like as anyone who's worked on a design system will know, like it's incredibly complex. It's very difficult to make a centralized solution that works for multiple different teams. Um, And really, unless you've worked on a design system, it's not reasonable to expect anyone to really understand what that takes. So there's a lot of kind of handholding. There's a lot of work involved in supporting contributors to contribute. It's not, it probably, I think I've said this before, but it probably takes longer, I think, to help somebody to contribute to a design system than it would to just make the thing yourself in the centralized team. Um, But I think recognizing the value that it brings and being persistent in your efforts to make people aware of contribution, help them to do it, um, help them to feel kind of motivated to do it. Uh, I think, yeah, that that persistence was was really sort of key to our um, our success in that area. And just practically speaking, with with managing those contributions from a community, were there any tools or processes or anything that helped with that? Um, yeah, so we had quite a kind of strict process, I, I would say. Um, strict insofar as, maybe strict is the wrong word, comprehensive is probably a better word. So, um, yeah, we have a set of contribution criteria, which, um, which are in the design system. So everything's kind of as open as possible, so people know what to expect. Um, so there's a set of criteria that um, we developed with the uh, sort of various people from the government community outside of our team so that we, again, like trying to involve people in the creation of these processes, I think is really important. Um, So there's a set of criteria that all kind of contributions to the design system have to meet and to make sure that we were being fairly um, unbiased, I suppose, and fair in terms of making the decisions about whether things met those criteria or not. Um, we enlisted the support of a working group, which was a panel of representatives from across government. 
um, all from kind of different departments and different disciplines and people with different levels of seniority. So everybody would have a slightly different perspective um, on the contributions. And we would get together with them once a month and ask them to review any new contributions and decide whether or not they had met the criteria. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a sort of process designed to try and um, democratise the design of the design system, I suppose, and to make it representative and um, ensure that it wasn't it wasn't kind of just our team sitting in the middle and making all the decisions without really understanding how it would affect the teams using those things um yeah that was that was our sort of process um and the yeah one more post I should mention is there's a um there's a community backlog on github which um, anybody can use it it doesn't you don't have to work in government to go and see it and it's accessible from the design system and it's basically a place where we try to host all of the research and all of the um, kind of experimental stuff and the examples that go into the components and patterns um, in the design system. So, again, it's kind of about pushing for that transparency and working in the open as much as possible so that people can kind of have a voice and they can influence things um, before they've actually been published. And do you think that process has worked well? If you were doing uh, the, the embarking on the same thing again, do you think you'd adopt a similar process? Was there anything that didn't didn't work? I think uh, I think I would adopt a similar process, but perhaps go into it with slightly different expectations. What I would see is maybe slightly more realistic expectations. Um, having kind of said what I said about how we think that you know contributing will make things easier and faster, um, I was definitely in that camp. I think. Um, I kind of thought that there would be a spike of work in the beginning to get people familiar with contributing. And then over time, we'd be able to be more hands off and people would just get the hang of it and it would be fine. Um, But actually, that never really materialised. There was always a lot of work involved in helping people to contribute. Um, And as I say, I think that that's sort of to be expected. I don't think you can really get away from that. But I still think it's valuable. I still think it's worth investing that time. Um, But perhaps not with an idea that you're going to speed things up or that you're going to be able to um, scale kind of quicker or more from having contribution. So, yeah, I I think the process worked well. Um, I do think it needs to be tailored to a different organisation. So um, when I'm starting a new role on Monday, funnily enough, um, working on another design system, and I don't expect to be able to kind of pick up that process and just move it over there. I think everything has to be kind of tailored to the organisation and the context that you're dealing with. Um, but there's definitely elements of it that that I would like to try and bring over. But yeah, with with slightly different tempered expectations, I think. Um, I've talked uh, on a previous episode, a couple of episodes ago, with Hayden Pickering about designing components particularly within a a design system to be accessible that's something you've got a lot of experience with too i believe obviously accessibility is is really really crucial when working within a a government design system but many of us would argue that it's really really crucial wherever you're working do you think design systems play a role in in the accessibility of a design or or the implementation of a design? So there's a there's a brilliant um, a brilliant talk by Tatiana Mack about building um, inclusive design systems that touches on this um, and and I that was sort of really influential to me um, and she talks about the sort of multiplication effect of design systems so. We have with design systems, we're kind of telling people what good looks like and we're giving people um, kind of quick ways to implement what we're telling people best practices. So that's 
that can work either way. It can work really well. If you give people good design and good accessible design, then you have the potential to kind of multiply that accessible design and to make things more accessible and more inclusive by default. If you make decisions that exclude people in a design system in that kind of centralized space, um, which becomes the start point for people designing services, um, then you really have the potential to proliferate that kind of exclusionary design. So um, I definitely think that design systems play a role in um, in kind of promoting and multiplying accessibility. Um, but I think that it all starts with the kind of intention of the teams working on and using the design system to kind of make that happen. A design system is really just a, it's, it's just the kind of vehicle, I suppose, and, and the intention needs to be there to make things accessible. Um, One of the things that always fascinates me, um, particularly with design systems that have such a, a large and varied audience, like the, the GovUK design system, is the process of uh, proliferating changes across the system. So if you for example, find an accessibility improvement that you could make in, in a particular pattern and you make it in the design system, how how do you ensure that that gets rolled out across such a broad audience? Is that something you've got any experience with? Yeah, so again, I think um, that we kind of, in the WK design system team, we put a lot of consideration into how that would work. Um, I have to be honest, a lot of it is to do with how it's technically implemented and I'm definitely not the right person to talk so much about the technical aspect of the team. But I think that um, I think that putting so there's kind of two I find there's sort of two camps with design systems and there's there's a camp which is like let's get stuff out there as quickly as possible um let's just make it open as soon as we can and that will stop duplication of effort and multiplication of effort um, and then we can iterate it as we go along um and then I think that there's a slightly more sort of let's move a bit more slowly camp which I think I'm in um which favours kind of holding holding off on releasing stuff until you have a certain level of confidence in it. And I think that's quite important because I think that um, in general, if you're designing products and services, then kind of starting with the minimal thing and then iterating as you go, I think works great. But I think when you're building something central that's designed for lots and lots of people to um, to reuse and to, and to sort of reuse and, and give to lots of different audiences, you very quickly lose control of the thing and the way that it's being used. So I think that having a certain amount of confidence in something before you release it and having a kind of assurance process in place, um, that means that you've got you've got some confidence that it's accessible before it goes out there um, is quite key. And then hopefully the thing is slightly more stable um, and I think that's really important for trust. I think I think trust is quite important when we're talking about making changes to design systems because if we're if we're releasing changes all the time, then that makes the system quite unstable to use. And I think that that kind of breaks down trust, and then people aren't so likely to install updates and things. Whereas I think if you can show that you're being considerate about what you're releasing and you're releasing changes only when necessary, um, then you have that kind of goodwill, and then people are more um, more kind of willing to make updates and and stuff I think um but yeah I mean I know that I know that a lot of work went into making sure that the kind of update process was fairly smooth and easy to implement in the WK design system I'm just not the right person to talk about it I think 
So we talked briefly about documentation. If I was looking to to document a design system and if I wanted to do a, a really good job of it, is there anything that you would advise me to to do to to make sure I was documenting stuff well? So I, d- I never think it's possible to kind of just give a, a blanket kind of statement um, here because it really does need to cater to like the specific audience that you're dealing with. Um, my thing is to always aim to be just a little bit more inclusive than you maybe uh, feel that you need to be. So um, if you're thinking about, especially in a smaller organisation that's maybe scaling, I think that you have to be just as considerate as your future audience and your potential audience as your current audience. So if you have a small organisation and you've got 10 front-end developers and they all know the same sort of stuff and they're um, and they're kind of you know, able to talk to each other and communicate fairly freely, then your documentation may not need to be as comprehensive um, as it would in a larger organisation. But I think that in order to help a design system scale and to make sure that it's equipped to do that, you have to think about who might join the organisation in future and who do you need to who do you need to kind of leave the door open for? Who do you need to make things clear to? Um, so I think always aim to be a little bit clearer than um, than you feel you need to be in the moment. Um, I think really kind of testing documentation a lot, um, is useful. So there's lots of different ways to kind of test content and documentation. Um, and I think that it's really important to go out and make sure that it makes sense to other people. Um, I think there's, I think Caroline Jarrett always says that, um, it's, if it's, if you're, if you understand it well enough to know it's correct, then you, you don't understand, you then you know too much to say that it's clear. Have I said that correctly? If you know it well enough to know it's correct, then you know it too well to say that it's clear. That's better, I think. Um, and I, yeah, and I really sort of agree with that. I think that to write good documentation, you have to have pretty good subject matter knowledge or you need to, or you end up developing that subject matter knowledge over time and through the process of writing it. By the time you've got that subject matter knowledge, it's really hard to judge whether or not you've conveyed it in a way that's clear to somebody who doesn't. So going out and testing it with people who don't know the subject matter like you do um, and getting them to actually try and use it in a practical task, I think is really important. And yeah, that, that's my sort of number one thing. You'll learn way more by putting it in front of people than you'll learn by um, reading around and looking at what other people have done, I think. And in doing that, you're obviously going to get feedback on on that documentation. Do you have any suggestions for how you would approach fixing things based on on that feedback? Is there anything specific that you'd be looking for in the feedback to understand how well your documentation would work? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things I think um, to watch out for. I think um, <clears throat> I think it's really important to separate um, kind of preferences and people perhaps not liking the documentation from people actually not being able to use it so I think any kind of task-based testing with documentation is, is better um, because it might be that actually somebody complains their way through an entire guide but they still complete the task that you've set them and that's not to say that that doesn't matter like if they if they managed to do the thing but they absolutely hated the process then you of course need to take that into consideration but I think that um some people, I'm probably one of them, just can't help themselves and will start kind of, especially if it's a content designer, I think we can't kind of ever quite put that content design mentality aside. So um, I, I definitely have a tendency to kind of start live editing stuff if I'm supposed to be doing 
um, participating as a kind of research candidate um, on it. So I think, yeah, separating kind of preference from um, from actual kind of usability and and blockers um, is quite important. I think that um, making sure that you're um, that you're kind of really interrogating the need to make changes and to update things. I think sometimes um, if somebody's particularly engaged with a design system, um, they can be quite, depending on the sort of person they are, they can be quite vocal about um, how they think it could be better or how they think that um, that it should, that, you know, how they would have done it perhaps or how it could be clearer. And I think it can be quite, especially if you're sort of trying to build goodwill and you're in that kind of early stage with the design system, it can be quite tempting to just immediately respond to that feedback and do what they say or try and make it clearer. Um, but then you can kind of end up building it too far in the direction of the of the kind of the loud minority. And I think actually really saying, like, how many people have got this problem? How many people, what evidence do we have that this isn't working for people? Um, and does that warrant a kind of update? I think, yeah, being trying to resist the temptation to respond to every kind of comment and bit of criticism that you receive is quite important too. Um, yeah. I suppose um, a common theme here with design systems that enable consistent design um, and give you a sort of reusable resource in your design um, and about accepting contributions uh, that make those designs stronger and implementing accessible design choices um, and documenting your design to make it easy and to access and use, it really all comes back to sort of inclusion. Would you say that was fair, about, in, in, about including people as much as possible? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think that um, a good design system is a representative design system, and it's not. I don't think it's possible to achieve representation by kind of acting on people's behalf I think you really need to try and involve people in the process as much as possible um, I think often for people working on design systems and certainly it was the case for us on the WK design system you tend to be one step removed from your uh, your kind of organization's end users so if you think for the WK design system the people that the design system is ultimately there to serve are members of the public and citizens and people using government services um but we in our team we're rarely working directly with those people most of the time our kind of direct users are uh, people working in the civil service so making sure that you've got really strong kind of feedback loops um between your uh your kind of your direct users and then their users to ensure that it's representative i think is really important and i think that's where inclusion comes in and and yeah i completely agree i think it's a really central theme I, I can't imagine how you could build a successful design system without a focus on that is there anything else you'd like to um share with us about your work on the uh, gov uk design system i think my sort of main takeaway from working on it is that the kind of documentation but the the kind of i i, I hate using the word physical when i'm talking about anything on the web but the kind of the visual representation of a design system, um, I think, can end up being the thing that we all get really fixated on. And we look at, you know, how it's coded and we look at how it's organised and what it looks like and how it's documented and and what the design is. And I think that obviously that stuff is really, is really important. And I think that um, 
it's it's the thing that you can look at and show people and share so it's it's easy to see why we get fixated on that but I really think that the the most important factor of it is people I think that having kind of um inclusive processes and making sure that you're you're kind of fostering safe discussion spaces and that you're giving people an opportunity to get involved in the work and to participate and feel motivated to help you with it and to kind of feel this sense of ownership over it I think all of that stuff is really important and all of that stuff really happens outside of the code and outside of the documentation so yeah I think my kind of my key takeaway from working on the WK design system is how much of it is really just people work um, and not really anything to do with guidance and code. Here at Smashing, we're all about learning. So what have you been learning lately? Lately, I've been learning a lot about um, productivity and focus. I think um, definitely towards the end of last year, uh, I became aware that I was really kind of plate spinning, and um, luckily, I don't think I, I don't think I smashed any of those plates. But um, but I found myself kind of working quite chaotically and um, moving around lots of different projects and kind of saying yes to everything. So this year is the year that I want to really kind of improve my focus. So I'm trying to learn a little bit about like mindfulness and um, and kind of organisation and how to say no to things um, strategically so that. I don't kind of get overwhelmed and too distracted. I started bullet journaling, so I've really become the full kind of the full 2020 cliche um, at this point. So that's, yeah, that's what I'm learning at the moment. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Amy, you can follow her on Twitter where she's at Amy underscore hoop or find her on the web at amyhoop.co.uk. Thanks for joining us today, Amy. Do you have any parting words for us? Stay cool. <laughs> What? Why did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Just came out. It just came out. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. (laughs) 